Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles. That is a great truth to know and to remember. We're in Luke chapter 20. As I said, we're going to finish this part of Luke. And then we're going to take a summer break and look at the book of Ruth and then come back to it in the fall. But we'll be looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 20, uh, 45 through the first four verses of 21. Title is Performing for the Wrong Audience. Performing for the Wrong Audience. Let me ask you, have you ever heard the phrase, pay it forward or random acts of kindness. You've heard these phrases before. Uh, You know, it's where you go and you do something for someone. They didn't ask for it. And it's not something that's intentional. It's not planned. It's just something that you do. Uh, If you ever go through sometimes the Chick-fil-A line, there's people who will do that. I'll get up there and they'll say, hey, the person in front of you paid it forward. They, They already paid for your meal. Would you like to pay for the guy next next to you? And I'm thinking, well, that's a whole van of 500 kids. I don't know. It was just me. I just wanted a chicken sandwich. It's, it's one of those things. It's so much pressure. What do I do? What do I do? And it comes to that thing. If you say no, you feel guilty, right, of doing so. Uh, it, I won't name the uh, radio station uh, here in the area that does these types of things. Um, if I gave it to you, it might sound fishy. But uh, they do this thing where it's called the random acts of kindness as well. And it started out, I think, as a good thing. You know, hey, call us and tell us your random act of kindness. What are you doing for someone or someone done for you is usually how I think of it. But after a while listening to a calls, it became very clear that the only people calling in were people who were doing the random act of kindness. And all of a sudden, it just became a sour note. You know, as I listened to it, as everyone is calling and they're, you know, giving them praises and stuff. And they're people, you could tell the, the pride in their, in their voices as they're telling others, this is what I did. And I'm thinking, wait, doesn't Jesus say, do not do your thing, your alms before others? Are you looking for the praise of men? Or the praise of, of God. And so that's one of the things that I've always kind of struck me uh, very odd sometimes as we think of those phrases. But yet we hear and we read about politicians and others who say they have a desire to do good for people, right? Every politician has a, has a program, has something that they want to offer you that I can make your life better. They want to do good deeds. I'm going to do these things and to help others only to find out that their motives were not altogether pure. They're doing things for their own benefit. It's to to advance themselves. It's not to really help others. One headline this week was, Black Lives Matters faces bankruptcy after plunging $8.5 million into debt this year. Though receiving millions of dollars, we're talking tens of millions of dollars Over the past three years, proclaiming to help African-Americans, it seems that most of the monies that they had uh, received from donations have gone to family members of those who own it, purchasing personal properties and other varied expenses not having to do with their core mission. We ourselves are victims of our own motives. We say we want something, we attempt to do something, but many times our hearts betray us and our motives, once they become clear, we find out that they were not selfishless, but selfish. Maybe even in serving God, we can become selfish. Our hearts betray us, and yet we realize that sometimes we're enslaved ourselves to all of our various passions and desires. We do things to indulge ourselves. Even our good works are guilty of that. The religious leaders have been questioning Jesus' authority over these last few weeks and passages that we've been studying in Luke. He has answered their questions so wisely, so well, that he finally just silenced them as no one would dare to come up and ask him a question. So, as we saw last week, Jesus went on the offensive And he asked them a question about the identity of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Who is he? How can he be David's son, but yet also the Lord of David? And again, 
we find that because the Spirit of God had not given that to him, enlightened them, and because of the hardness of the heart, they did not answer him because they truly did not know who the identity of the one they truly expected to come. They thought he would just be a, a regular human, one with a human nature, come to do what they wanted him to accomplish. But it's really the Holy Spirit that can only enlighten the minds and hearts of the true identity of who Jesus is, as he is fully God and fully man. The religious leaders are actually blind guides with no spiritual discernment. We also learn that embracing this truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that this truth leads to life for those who will believe and accept it by, but other, but other than that, it, those who deny the truth, it leads to death, it leads to condemnation, it leads to hell. Well, failing in their attempt to derail, discredit, and entrap Jesus with their question, Jesus now turns his attention from the religious leaders that are outside the fringes, and he turns his attention to his disciples, those that have been following, not only just the 12, but those that have been following from Galilee. And he's going to warn them about adopting and the teachings, the practices, and the attitudes of the religious leaders. He charges the religious leaders, the scribes particularly, as hypocrites. Hypocrites is a Greek word that just means actors. He says, these guys are hypocrites. They're just actors playing a part. They are not who they truly are. They're just wearing a mask. He points out that the religious leaders really desire, their motives is just to receive the adoration and attention of the crowd rather than that of Yahweh, God himself, the Father. They perform their religious duties, as we find, for the wrong audience. What you and I will learn from this passage is that when we do our worship, when we do our reasonable worship that he says in Romans 12, is that you and I today, even today, is that you and I serve and perform before an audience of one, the Father, Jesus Christ. And so with you and I today, we're going to challenge and examine our, our, our motives in our worship. So with that, if you're at Luke chapter 20, we're going to read the first part of this verse. It says, And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long, ro long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So, Father, help us as we come and we, we look at this passage, this eyewitness account of what happened between Jesus a few days before his death. Father, that we come to understand it. It has been preserved for us. It is profitable for doctrine to teach us what is right to teach us when we go wrong, to help correct our behavior and our attitudes and our thoughts, and then to train us how to walk in the way that you've called us to do. So I pray that your spirit would have free reign and we would see this passage 2,000 years later for what Jesus is truly teaching, to take the warnings at heart, to Father, to do the work and the difficult work of examining our hearts ourselves as the spirit moves within us that we may be um, pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to make a couple observations, then we'll go into interpreting and applying it. The first observation comes with this first passage. It comes with a warning. Beware of the scribes. Very simple. Beware of the scribes. Now when Jesus is saying this, it's kind of like truly, truly, right? Surely, surely. He's wanting us to pay attention. There is a warning here. There's a caution sign here that he wants us to be very clear about. Now, as you may recall from our earlier messages and studies, the scribes are also known as lawyers. They were the theologians of the law, specifically the Pharisees with the Pharisees. It was their job to study the Mosaic law, the prophets, the writings, interpret the meaning, and then apply them in their teaching to the people. Jesus, though, throughout his ministry has spent a considerate amount of time correcting their misinterpretations of Scripture and their misapplication 
of their teaching. He has called them fools, ignorant, prideful, and whitewashed tombs filled with dead man's bones, meaning that their, their tombs look nice and pristine, but if you were to open up, it's just full of rotting flesh and bone. The scribes received Jesus' most scorn due to their influence and the expectations that they should have known better than anyone else. They were held to a higher standard due to their important task of guarding the law and the privilege of teaching God's people, but they had mishandled it time and time again for generations. And they led the people astray. In this passage, Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching the people. He knows his time is short and he's wanting to spend it wisely by giving his disciples last words before his death and crucifixion and then resurrection. And he wants them to beware of the scribes. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be condemned. And he's spending these precious moments with his people. And he gives them this dire warning saying, beware, these are people you should not be following. Do not emulate them. Do not walk after their path. Do not adopt their teachings, their behaviors, their motives. And he again publicly denounces the scribes before all the people. Now, Jesus gives them several reasons. He's not just making things up because they're his opponents or because they want to see him be killed. Jesus doesn't have that mindset in this way, but he's going to point out some things that they're doing that is wrong. First, they're walking in long robes. Now, at first, that seems kind of like an odd thing. Why is he upset? Why is he beware because they're walking in long robes? Well, in those times, one theologian, Walter Wessel, writes that the teachers of the law wore long white linen robes that were fringed and reached almost to the ground. So walking through the marketplace, through the stores, down the streets, they would be very noticeable and distinct. So people would say, oh, look at who's coming. The greetings in the marketplace, he says, beware. He says, they were shown special attention in public and were greeted with honorific titles such as rabbi, teacher, and master. So their, their desire was to be noticed and to be adored and adulated among the people. We also see that they, got the, they sought out the best seats in the synagogue. They wanted to be front, right next to the scrolls, taking a place of prominence. Remember, Jesus said before, is when you go to a banquet, don't sit at the honor table, but a seat, but, but go down further so someone may exalt you later. And so we see that this is something that they're always looking for the best seat to get to the right place. You know, it's like the person that's getting right next to, to the celebrity or getting closest to the camera as they can. But also, as again, in the same way, they like the places of honor. They were invited to the finest banquets by people of influence and wealth because of the prestige and given special places of honor. So you see, they wanted to exalt themselves. They wanted to be noticed. They wanted everyone to know that who they are and where they are and who they can be. If that was not enough, Jesus then pointed out it's not just what they're doing in their hearts and motives with their outward appearance, but it's also the fact that they're devouring, they're swallowing widow's houses. Just the word devour, you know, conjures up just terrible images. We do have to understand that they were not allowed to be paid. So the scribes depended on gifts and donations for their services. And often because they were lawyers, they would serve as estate planners for the widows and other wealthy patrons. And what they would do is they would pressure them to donate them. They would find people who were, who were weak or people who were easily manipulated. We can think of scammers today, right? And they were looking for easy prey and they would devour them. They would get, you need to donate us, look to us. They also made fake prayers in public that were insincere, meant to draw attention to themselves. They did so to look holy and pious. And because of the hypocrisy, the scribes, Jesus says, are going to receive a greater condemnation, not commendation, but condemnation, meaning judgment, a condemnation, a, a punishment, a severe sentence is what they will receive. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote in James 3.1 that not many of you should become teachers, speaking to the New Testament church. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So when Landon and Randy and I come up and set and we preach and teach, we need to understand that there is a higher accounting for us. 
For those of you who profess to be Christians, you need to understand that there is going to be a higher accounting for you. And it's not just your actions, but as we're going to see, it's in our motives. One Bible teacher warns this. You'll see it here on the monitor. He says, on the judgment day, every secret thing will be brought to life. Now, does that not give you pause? For all the things you've done that your spouse isn't aware of, your children aren't aware of, maybe your parents, not just your actions, but your thoughts, your motives. He says, the motives of our hearts will be exposed and there will be no more pretense or spiritual deception. There will be a day when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. And you will be without excuses. There will be no curtain for you to hide behind. It will come down. The rug in which we uh, uh, sweep everything under will be pulled back. You and I must recognize that there is no way to hide from the eyes of God. So Jesus is warning them of this time. Instead of being men to be emulated and respected, Jesus is warning his disciples to avoid this trap of self-righteousness. In other words, do not do these things just to make yourself feel good or to make others think that you are good. No amount of good deeds self-deprivation or religious works can justify us in the eyes of a holy God. Once again, outside of faith, all of our works are as what? Filthy rags to a holy God. And so just doing sacraments and ordinances, just being here in church or giving, does not make you like God. It does not justify you before God. Now, the second observation involves the poor widow. And that's where we're going to go to Luke chapter 21, verse 1. And I believe it might be here on the monitor as well. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than more in than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. This time, as we look at not just Luke's gospel, but also Mark's, Jesus is sitting in the temple and he's by the collection box, observing those who were coming by to give. Now, the temple tax and other free will offerings were collected in what's called the court of the woman. That would be the first court. As you walk through the temple, it would be called the court of the woman. Anyone could come into there. And what we see here is that there were 13, well, we don't see here, but knowing tradition and history, there were 13 trumpet-shaped donation boxes set up for people to come and donate. So you can just kind of imagine a trumpet-like thing. You would put the money in, and it would kind of make a noise as it would then just rattle its way down there. And you could imagine, as the rich would come, they would take and they pour their money in, and it would make a loud sound as it all trickles down through the trumpet into the collection box on the other side. But you could imagine, as a poor woman, she comes and she throws down two copper uh, pennies, not much at all, not even, not even a day's wage. As she puts that in there, it would just make of a tinkle of a noise very quickly. After watching for some time, Jesus calls his, over his disciples to point out that many rich people put in large sums, as I was just sharing, while a poor widow comes and puts in two small, small copper coins, they make just a penny in those days. Now, the copper coins was the smallest denomination of money in Palestine. And in addressing his disciples, Jesus points out three things. The poor widow put in more than all those who gave, which doesn't make sense because, no, she only put in two small pennies. Others were putting in, but Jesus says actually hers was more. The rich contribute out of their abundance. They give because they have so much, but she gave out of her poverty, what she did not have. And the widow put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, here's where I want to have you pay attention because we're going to change things up here. Traditionally, this passage has been interpreted and applied as this widow is someone who is worthy 
to be emulated. Instead of being like the religious leaders who do their work out of selfish ambitions, be like the widow who selfishly gives all she has. One theologian writes that the means of the giver and the motive are the measure of true generosity. So it's not about how much you give, but about what you give with the motivation that you give. And that's how this has been taught traditionally. However, as you look at this passage, Jesus does not commend this woman. He does not even say, be like this woman. It's not what the passage says. Now, instead, there's a sense of truth here, is that the scripture does call us to give generously, cheerfully, intentionally, and sacrificially. However, recently over the past decades or so, Many have pointed out that the context of this passage actually is demonstrating an example of the religious leaders' practice of devouring widows' houses. If you look at the context of what we're looking at last week, the context today, and then what we're going to get into in the fall when he talks about the temple, the destruction, is that he is giving them warnings and condemnation, not commendation. So where does the widow fit in? Should we be emulating her? Yes and no. We should have her motives in which she's trying to show her generosity and sacrificial giving to God. However, what's happening here is not a demonstration of just that. It's a demonstration of God's anger towards the scribes. Hence why beware. Paul T. Penley, he comments, it's here on the monitor for you. He says, Jesus is angry at other Jewish teachers who are persuading widows to give all their money to the temple bank. Hence why Jesus says, look at this this woman. She's given everything she has. He says, uh, he, he sees a corrupt religious system that no longer honors God's heart to care for the needy. Teachers of the law no longer honor the intent of the law. And you and I know what scripture many times says is to watch over the widows, to honor the widows, to care for the poor and for the orphans. However, this woman, her religious service, even though her motive is good, is she is giving it to please the Pharisees. And they are taking her money. Instead of giving money, she should have been receiving from the treasury. He goes on to write, Jesus is intentionally highlighting the widow's gift to the temple as an illustration of how messed up Jerusalem temple worship is. He is condemning Jerusalem's leaders just like Amos and Isaiah, the former prophets of the Old Testament, and Ezekiel did before him. The widow's gift is evidence of what Ezekiel saw in the temple over 600 years earlier when we read, the people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and the needy and have oppressed the sojourner with justice. In other words, if you're taking notes, you may want to get this. What this passage is really teaching is that the widow's offering is an illustration of injustice not generosity. This passage is about her injustice, not her injustice, but the injustice done towards her, not necessarily the generosity of the widow. The widow's livelihood was being devoured by wealthy religious leaders, just like some TV evangelists today that convince poor people to send in their money so they can use it then to buy their private airplanes. And their properties. You and I know this. We have a a plethora of them here in Orange County. In which they compel and if you want to be healed, if you want this, if you want that. The widow may have had an obedient heart. But Jesus cared more about correcting the corruption that he was witnessing. God's people were supposed to be caring for the poor and not taking from them. The scribes and the Pharisees should have been protecting widows and showing them compassion. Instead, these were men who were devouring widows' houses, taking their last pennies without any concern for their welfare. And I believe as I considered this passage this week, I believe these theologians, these scholars are getting it right as you look at the context is that these people, this is a demonstration, an illustration of what Jesus is saying, beware. In other words, as you go out and minister, 
as pastors, teachers, as churches, our goal is not to pull every penny from you to fulfill whatever indulgences we may have, but is to care for our people. Now, I will talk a little bit about generosity in a moment because there is a sense in which this is an example of both. But you and I need to realize is that our our giving or our service must come from a heart motive that is pure, that is holy, that is not selfish and seeking to get our own. So in essence, this passage is actually about worship. And you and I need to know about worship. God has called us to worship. One of the problems that we have in today's living is that in churches today is that people expect people are expecting and churches are giving them worship which God never commanded. Now, we're not a church that goes by the regular principle and says the only things we do are what's in the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible, then we don't do it. However, we need to realize that God has taught us how to worship. So this is passage about worship in our living In our day-to-day life, how we go about life, whether it's at work, at home, at play, in our marriage. It's also about how we pray, how we lift up our prayers and praise to God, as well in our giving. Not only giving of our money, but our time, our energy, so on and so forth. So here's the thing that you need to understand. This is not new. I'm not going to blow your minds. But you have two choices here. Either your worship... Your service to God will be accepted or rejected. And you need to understand that. So if you're like me, I want to worship. That's one of the purposes we're called here, right? To focus on God. If I want to worship, whether it's reading God's word, it's preaching, it's loving my family, it's supporting my family, it's so on and so forth. I want it to be accepted. Is there anyone here that wants to be Cain? No, we all want to be Abel's, right? God accepted Abel's. He did not accept Cain's. And we really don't know why. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But we know that your worship is either accepted or rejected. It's either pleasing to God, as we saw earlier in our scripture reading, or it's rejected. Beware. Our goal as elders is that your worship today, your worship during the week, is accepted by God. I want all that you do, whether it's your prayers for your children, whether it's your sharing your faith, whether it's reading your Bible or just your thought, I want it to be accepted by God. The Bible tells us that's our reasonable service, right? To give ourselves as a sacrifice. I truly want that for you as I want it for myself. The outcome is not based, though, on your actions. It's not about you praying longer or harder. You know, that's one of the things I learned when I was young. I told this story before is when Dawn and I were first married. Oh, actually, uh, yeah, we were married at this time. And we, on Wednesday nights, we had prayer groups. And so what they would do is after singing and preaching, we would then get up into prayer groups and we'd pray. Now, I always made sure that I was not in Brother DeClute's group. Because Brother Clute was an old saint of God, probably in his 70s at that time. And if I got in his, and if I got in his prayer group, we were going to pray forever. I was free. I was finding the youngest, earliest Christian I could find because him and I were going to pray and we were going to get it over with. I could not stand on the floor that long because you kneel, you bend. I'm all, all over. You get in Brother Clute's, man, he's playing forever. And he, but his prayer was genuine. But after a while, there was a desire to have that type of prayer. I don't know what that had to do with anything, but... But what we have to realize is that it comes with our heart. It's not on praying harder or longer. Uh, that's what I was going to say is when one young man went to a pastor and said, listen, um, I want to pray longer. How can I do that? As if, you know, I want to come and run longer. If I wanted to know how to long run, I'd ask Randy. Hence, I've never had that conversation with him. Uh, you know, I want to work harder. I want to get better skills. So you might say, well, here's some steps you are going to do. Well, he didn't give him any steps like, well, start doing popcorn prayers, you know, where you just say things, right? Or, or do this or do that or start five minutes and add 10 minutes. He just said, you know what? When you need to pray longer, you will pray longer. In which a sense, it really comes from the heart. Now, sure, can you train yourself to do so? Yes. But if again, if it's just to say, oh, I pray for 30 minutes a day, then you got your praise from man. You don't get it from God. But it's the motives of the heart that matter. Jesus said the scribes will receive the greater condemnation. 
while the poor widow, though misguided and mistreated, is honored by Christ or will be honored by Christ for her sacrifice and generosity. He understood her motives, even though it was being done in a wrong way. The prophet Jeremiah declares that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, meaning incurably wicked. That's in some King James, you might say it's desperately wicked. In the ESV, it says sick. It just means it's incurable. You know, so everyone wants to change their hearts. They want to uh, uh, do something which they, they can do something different about, but it's incurable. It cannot be cured. Who can understand it? The Spirit says. And so we come up with all sorts of religion. That's what religion is. It's just man's attempt to make himself feel better and to please some type of deity, whether he has a deity in mind or not. So if I do these things, then that is pleasing. Yeah, I was talking to a lady today, uh, this week, about AA. Um, I forgot to put it out, but she, she runs a, a ministry, not a ministry, she runs a program for those who are addicted to food and want to change. I'm not sure I've met too many of those people, but, you know, there's those things. And I said, well, what is it about? What is it based on? She goes, well, it's based kind of like on the AA, alcohol anonymous, you know, 12 steps, you know, gamblers anonymous and so on and so forth. And what's the goal of that? If you do these 12 things, right, then you'll be pleased and you'll, have, you'll change your heart. But what's the thing that we always hear? Finish this phrase for me for AA. Once an alcoholic, always. So what did the 12 steps do? They're just really religious steps that you do to make yourself better and to change your behavior. But you never change your heart. One Christian said that to me once. He went through AA. He says, yeah, I, I'm no longer, uh, you know, I, I went through that. I don't drink anymore, but I'm still an alcoholic. We're very good at that nowadays. I'm an alcoholic Christian. I'm a gay Christian. You know, I'm a blank Christian. Really? There's no such thing in the Bible about that. I see redeemed Christian. I see a Christian who, who is no longer living after the flesh. I can see a Christian who is struggling. But yet what we really need is not behavior modification. We need a heart change. And 12 steps will not get you to a heart change. They may help you modify your behavior, but it won't change your heart. It's incurable. Hence why we talk about Roman Catholicism and the sacraments. They do not cure that which ills you. Nor does Muslim or nor does any other religion that it may be. You can go to Scientology, and I hear that they're putting out lots of commercials lately. You can go and pay buco bucks for in-rod moderating, but it's never going to change the heart. So that's a good question. Who then can understand the heart if it is desperately sick? No shortage of songs and poems. Novels and movies have been written to explore the fathoms of the heart. Only to conclude this is the world's wisdom. The heart wants what the heart wants. That's the world philosophy. Follow your heart heard that phrase before just follow your heart and things will be good but the heart is desperately wicked it's incurable why follow it we wring our hands and we throw up our hands trying to determine and discern what is it that motivates us ourselves our spouses our children our family and friends why is it that they do the things that they do what causes people to do what they do and say how can we change our hearts? How can we change the hearts of our spouse and our children? How can we motivate people to change? Well, you've heard me say this again. You need to understand what the heart is. The heart's made of three things. It's made of your mind, the things that you think. It's made of your emotions, your desires, the things that you love. The heart consists then of the will, the things that you choose. How do we change our thoughts? How do we change our desires? How do we change the choices? Hence why we get all these 12-step programs and all these things that we create to try to do it, but yet we find ourselves, why am I still the same person that I was three months ago, 
five years ago, ten years ago? Why do I still struggle with these things? Now, scientists, doctors, theologians, or not theologians, theologians and therapists, politicians, social managers, and a myriad of philosophers have theories, treatments, and programs meant to answer these questions of how to change the heart. Yet in reality, only God can discern the motivations of the heart, our mind, our desires, emotions, and our will. In scripture, we read this. I think it might be here on the monitor. In Jeremiah, I, the Lord, he says, searches the heart and tests the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You have known when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. Proverbs, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. It's only God who really knows us. To be honest, you and I are the greatest ones that we fool. Many times we make eye contact in the mirror if we can, and we fool ourselves. We, we, we talk ourselves into things that we know are not true. So in this passage today, Luke shows through Jesus' observation that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has a clear view, a crystal clear view, I should say, of both the scribe's and the widow's heart. He is able to see into the motivation of why they're doing what they're doing. And because he does, he teaches us two things. Number one, is that you and I need to follow the, 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 the warning of beware and follow those leaders that emulate the heart of God. That's number one. You and I need to find people that we can follow that truly emulate the word of God. Hence why as we as elders, we have these qualifications. Uh, now follow us, as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. When Rob diverges from the word of God, then you diverge from me. And hit me upside the head if you need to. And bring me back. That's what we as brothers and sisters do in the, in, in the house of God. But what we need to do is we need to follow people that emulate the word of God. Too many times you and I are following the examples and the influence of people that truly are not Christ followers. And I'm talking about big time pastors and teachers. I'm talking about those who are great influencers on Instagram, Spotify, whatever, not Spotify, whatever the, the other things are. <coughs> And you and I need to realize that we need to follow Christ. The people who emulate Christ. You have choices, selfish or selfless. We can be greedy or we can be generous. One leads to false worship while the others demonstrate true worship. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, For, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God? He's asking the church. Look at me. Look at my ministry. In what way? Who am I trying to find a pleasure from? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. As Jesus said, you cannot serve mammon, the belly, and serve God at the same time. You cannot serve Satan, and you cannot serve God at the same time. So you and I have to look, what is the motivation of my heart? Why do I do the things I do? What is it about me? Is my worship truly pleasing to God? I'm afraid today that just like in Jesus' time, there are too many professing Christians who are seeking the approval of man rather than God. Too many today professing Christians are afraid of being ridiculed, maligned, or even canceled. So are you following the right example? Follow me as I follow Christ. Paul, many times, imitate God. Imitate Christ. Jesus is our great example. So not only should we follow those that emulate the heart of God, but we also need to have the motives of the heart determined, or the motives of our heart determine whether our worship is accepted or rejected. So it's not, again, it's not just our actions, but it's the motives. The scribes sought their own selfish desires. They were more interested in social significance. The widows sought out godly desires. She was more interested in helping others. She was self her self-sacrificing generosity is on full display. It was obvious that she trusted God to meet her needs. As she threw the last of her money in, she believed that God would supply her needs. 
Again, turning to the Apostle Paul, <coughs> this time in 1 Thessalonians, we read this. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So as you, what you and I, or what we ask the church to do, is you are to evaluate the elders, your teachers. Are we people men to emulate? Do we follow the qualifications of Titus and Timothy? Are we people that are serving, that are loving, that are generous? And when we're not, you are to hold us accountable for those things. So one might ask then, how do we discern the motives of our heart? How do we change our heart? Once we examine and say, you know, maybe I am doing what I'm doing for the applause of others. It could be up here singing. It could be preaching, teaching. It could be watching the nursery. It could be just acts of service that you like to do. You say, I am. Maybe I am being a little bit selfish. Maybe I like the applause of people too much. We need to join with David, who cries out, as you see here in the passage, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. He says, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be your prayer each and every day. Search my heart. Expose the weaknesses in my worship. Show me where my worship is not genuine, is not true, but is selfless or selfish and seeking applause. You see, God gives us a new heart with new motives and new desires. In Hebrews 12, 4.12, again here looking at the, at the monitor, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrows and able to judge the thoughts and motives of the heart. Hence why I want to encourage you, you need to open up the word of God for it's only in God's word through the Holy Spirit that he starts to expose your heart. Do you love your wives? Are you submitting to your husband? Are you putting away corrupt communication? So on and so forth. As you know, the scriptures are profitable for doctrine to tell us what is right and wrong. For many people, when I'm counseling or talking to people, uh, I'll just ask them, well, what is your anchor of truth? Let's say it's about gender. They say, well, there's many genders, and you can switch genders at will. Well, what's the anchor of that truth? Is there so, what is that solid rock thing that you make that decision on, or is it just based on something that just moves with the, with the crowd, with the influence of the people? This could be many, many different things. You can bring this into it. It's also to tell us for reproof. It's profitable to tell us when we are wrong. Then to correct us, tell us how to get right, and training righteousness how to stay right. That's what you and I need. We need our minds. We need our thoughts, we need our desires, our loves, and our choices, our will to be bent to that of God. So let me share with you as we just get ready near the end here, is how do I do that? Well, number one, you need to have a humble heart that worships God in living and serving. You need to have a humble heart. You need to realize that you're performing for God, not for yourself, not for others. The actions of the scribes show their heart. The Old Testament had much to say about taking care of widows. The prophet Isaiah had warned, woe to those who decree uh, bad decrees and writers who keep writing oppression to, ser- to turn aside from the needy and rob the poor of their right and that the widows may be their spoil. The writer of Psalms reminds us that God is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would later take Jesus' teaching and write, religion is, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You and I need to recognize that. James would go on to warn those who look for the best seats and to give the best seats and to show partiality. You and I are to love and to care. Not to seek to use other people. That's one of the dangers that we and the elders and the others are always talking about. When we're asking for you to give money, we need to make sure it's not for our own personal indulgence so I can have this or have that. So that the work of God may continue. We want that to be our trust and your trust. 
Early in his ministry, Jesus had taught his disciples that everyone who exhausts himself will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. The scribes were the very opposite of that. So let me ask you this. Are your religious activities done for selfish purposes? Are you seeking to justify yourself before a holy God? Look how good I am. Maybe it's for others. Look how good of a person I am. Are you trying to earn points with God or others? Why are you here today? Why are you here to worship? Why do you read the Bible and sing songs of praise? Only you can answer these questions through the work of the Holy Spirit as he discerns your motives and hearts. So you need to have a humble heart that worships God in living and serving. Number two is you need to have a sacrificial, generous, cheerful heart that worships God in giving. For all of our worship is a giving of ourselves. Romans 12.1 says that to, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. And so you and I need to see that worship is, is, is denying ourselves. As, as uh, John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. So to do that, you and I must give of ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we see where Paul writes to the Corinthian church to be this type of giver. One heart check to examine is your giving. I always tell people, let me see your time calendar. Your, we used to call it what, a Franklin time planner. Let me see your calendar and let me see your checkbook. We can tell you where your motivations are, where your heart is, what you're thinking, what you love, and what choices you make. Why? Because those are the things, our time and our money are the things that are precious to us. One hard examine is to test your giving, to examine your giving. <clears throat> is it intentional? The Bible tells us to give as God has purposed in your heart. Are you intentionally, as he says, set apart each weekly? Now, you don't have to give weekly. I, I give monthly myself. Uh, just because the way it works for us. But he says, set aside. So it's intentional. Are you giving intentionally? Are you giving generously? Are you giving above? Are you giving sacrificially? I, I love what David says. I will not give that which I do, which I do not own or, or give what I did not have to pay. In other words, are you giving in such a way that it hurts? If your giving, your, your worship is not sacrificial, then you need to look at your worship. Now, this is not just in giving and money. This, this could be in your time, your energy, your aspirations. This is, is, is in other words, it's, it's kind of remember the 80s, the worship wars. Many of you weren't there. Rick was there during those times. Churches, should we do hymns? Should we do praise choruses? And so on and so forth. And the worship wars still continue. And you'd have those that were older say, no, we only do hymns. And we'd have others that said, no, we want to just do praise choruses. So they would then separate and say, well, we'll have two services. The problem is, is not one of them was giving up. They're not sacrificial. I am getting older. My ears do not like all that sound. But I never want to deny the musical expression that is pleasing to God that someone else may enjoy. Why? Because I'm willing to sacrifice in that way. He may not do it like I want it to be done, but I'm willing to praise God for that. Why? Because we worship but it's also sacrificial and then cheerful. Now, I'm not speaking just, again, of your financial giving, but of your time, your energy, and your attention. Do you seek to love others as you love yourself? That's what true worship is. God commands and expects us to worship in a manner that he has dictated. True worship is totally focused on him as we get near here to the close the author of Hebrew writes that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, as we spoke about earlier, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So here's the question. Any worship must come through faith, or the statement. It's a confident trust in the person of God. The Holy Spirit warns that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So in your worship today, is it through faith? Is it being accepted? Do you have a contrite heart, a broken and contrite heart as we read in our earlier scripture? 
We can clap, we can sing, we can dance, we can jump out, we can do all these things, but if it's not from a broken and contrite heart, then it is not acceptable to God. King Solomon summed up the expectations of Yahweh in Ecclesiastes 12. You'll see it here. The end of the matter has all been heard. Fear God and keep his judgments or commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What are you to do? What is your worship? Fear God. Keep his commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. May you and I, may our worship be acceptable to him because our hearts show the true motive of a desire to worship God. Not of selfishness, but of generosity, of sacrifice, of recognizing that you are justified, you and I are justified, not by our own self-righteousness, not by our works here today, but by a righteousness that is outside of ourselves, that comes from Jesus Christ. Let's pray for our desires, our motives, and our will, and our thoughts to align with God. Amen? They ever had bowed near right close, and we ask the worship team to come up, as well as Randy, as we just take a moment to pause and consider this passage. Would God look at you and say, beware, do not follow the example of, then put your name. Are you someone that would say, well, you know, I, I struggle. I, I just, I'm not going to do it if, if, if I don't get to sing in front of a bunch of people. I'm not going to teach unless I have a full house. We need to worship because that's what God has called us to do. In all times, in all places. Why? Because that's pleasing to God when our thoughts, when our mind, or when our thoughts, when our emotions, our loves, our desires, and our will, our choices align with Him. May God grant that to us. Randy, would you come close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.